Good morning. My name is Kevin Lentz, and I get the privilege of preaching this morning. Every now and then, I get to move up a few steps uh, to help from delivering the children's message to come up here and preach on the big platform. Now, when I say I get to move up a few ste steps, I mean the literal steps from down there to up here. I don't mean that my sermon today has a message that's a few steps up from a children's message. Uh, it isn't really more advanced or more complicated or more theologically deep than what I would say to children. But I promise you, it is longer, much longer. So buckle up. This post-it note says, slow down. As I said, uh, my name is Kevin Lentz. I've been a member of UBC here for 30 years. Uh, I primarily work in the children's ministry alongside my wife, April, who is the UBC Kids Director. And I'm also part of the preaching backup team, uh, the quick response preaching team, the substitute preachers, the B-side preachers. I'm not really sure what our official team name is. Uh, the last time I preached, I filled in for Jeremiah back in January. And I'm now on my regularly scheduled preaching day, except that I'm not. I was supposed to preach on June 6th, two weeks ago. I switched with Brian Briscoe so that he could preach on the 6th, uh, but then Brian switched with Dennis Townsend, who did preach on the 6th and not me, and Brian is actually going to preach in July, I think, so I'm a little messed up, and this also means I was not planning on preaching on Father's Day. I had a message I've been working on for a while, so I was faced with a choice to keep my message or pivot to a Father's Day message, and I wasn't sure which way would be best. So I asked my D group uh, what they thought uh, the direction I should take. Our group is all men and mostly fathers, and they all said that they certainly noticed that on Mother's Day, the mothers get a special service with a message just for them, and it's heartfelt, and on Father's Day, eh, sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. Um, several of them also said that even though they noticed this, they don't really care. So, um, they did, however, helpfully offer to interrupt my preaching today with many loud amens at whatever time they felt like. There you go. So, so prepare yourself for that, too. Uh, they did suggest, along with other people that I talked to, that I take a combination approach that includes my original message and a special word to fathers. So, I'll do that. I could only speak about being a father. But if you have seen me preach in the past, you will recall that I get very weepy and choked up, often over the most minor things. And I could foresee that if I devoted all of my time today to the joys and the pains of fatherhood, I would use up all the Kleenex in the room, especially because I am blessed to have my own father in the service today. See, first one. <laughs> I will circle back around to fathers when I wrap up. I have a, a special challenge for you, uh, for all parents really, but a special challenge for fathers. Um, today I will be preaching about another of the church's ministries where I am active, uh, the stewardship team. That's right. Today I'm going to stand up here and say, give me some money. Seriously, what would that be like if that was all I did? If I just spent the next 40 minutes, hour and a half, just standing here saying, give me some money. You, give me some money. You over there, give me some money. You all online, give me some money. You didn't give enough. Come on, give me some more. That would be absolutely horrible. That would make this morning a miserable time. I'm not going to do that. I am torn, and I am tense. And that tension comes uh, from the fact that this is hard to do. It's hard to stand up here and ask you to give away your money 
Talking about stewardship is walking a very fine line between being too pushy and not being pushy enough. There are some hard realities for every part of this. Our church needs money to pay the salaries and pay the bills. And people in this church are already so generous with their gifts, and they resent being told, yeah, but give a little more. There are parts of this building that are in desperate need of repair, and we are delaying fixing them because we don't have the funds. And there are families in this church who have had large financial upsets during this pandemic and have not yet recovered. Our church has a heart for helping others and blessing people with our gifts, but we need to be mindful and respectful of our own church family's needs too. For those of you who are regular givers, you might tune me out saying, well, I already give all the time. Those of you who give sacrificially might be sitting there thinking, I actually am giving as much as I can and I'm even stretching. For those of you who are not yet givers, you might roll your eyes and start checking your email and think, here comes another sermon about money. Or for those of you who are strapped for cash or lost your job or have new bills, you might be thinking, I want to, but I can't right now. And all of those are thoughts that run through my head as I try to imagine the best way to speak to you this morning. And I must confess, I'm still a little unsure about how to do it. So, as we should always do with everything we do, as we look into God's living word and see what he has to tell us. The Bible is clear on the fact that we should give, but it is more complicated on what we should give and how much we should give. A 10% tithe is easy to find in the scriptures, but so is giving above and beyond when that's required. Solomon was incredibly wealthy, and he gave untold amounts of riches to build the temple and his palace and to secure his entire country's prosperity. Jesus looked at the givers in the temple and said, that woman who only gave two coins is giving more than anyone else here. Mary and Joseph brought an offering when they first brought Jesus to church, a small offering, two doves. When King Solomon celebrated bringing the Ark of the Covenant to the newly built temple in Jerusalem, he sacrificed bulls and sheep beyond counting. People in the Bible did not just give money or sacrifices. They gave their time and their skills to God's purpose. And those are all over the spectrum too. Noah spent years building a massive ark. The Shunammite woman and her husband built one addition onto their house so that Elisha the prophet would have a place to stay when he came to town. Countless craftsmen came together and brought their skills in woodworking and stoneworking and weaving and metalworking to build an elaborate tabernacle and a holy ark of the covenant and a glorious temple. And Jochebed wove a little basket to put a baby in a river. So how are we supposed to give our offerings to God? Let me tell you what this message is and what it isn't. This is a time that I want us to look into God's word and see a model of how we should give. This is a time I want to encourage you to reevaluate your giving and your stewardship and recognize where your priorities are in relationship to your possessions. This is not a time where I'm going to stand up here and glare at you and preach on and on and tap my foot while I wait for you to whip out your checkbooks or fire up the apps or turn out your pockets on the spot. This is not a time of sob stories and of arm twisting. This is not a guilt trip. The Bible may be confusing about the amount to give, but it is very clear that our giving is a celebration and it is a happy thing. 2 Corinthians 9, 7 in the NIV translation says, yeah, I should have had it memorized. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, 
not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. That same verse in the message reads, I want each of you to take plenty of time to think it over and make up your own mind what you will give. That will protect you against sob stories and arm twisting. God loves it when the giver delights in the giving. So let's talk about delightful things. The good Lord has provided me with a stewardship joke. I want to tell you about a friend of mine, but you may be surprised to know that this is a friend I have never met. I have never seen him in person, nor have I ever spoken with him. His name is Casey, and I've only communicated him with, with him online through written text. I've seen pictures of him, and I've heard his voice on his podcast, but he and I, we just type to each other. I told him a few weeks ago that I was preparing to preach, and that opened up a good conversation. Our online chat went back and forth between questions and answers, where I was telling about the stewardship team, about being nervous, about searching the scriptures, and he was asking if I'd preached before and and general questions about our church. At one point I typed, it can be a tough message to ask people to give money, and he typed, what denomination? What a setup. I said, we'll take fives, tens, twenties, fifties, hundreds, whatever you got. I didn't say it was a good stewardship joke. (laughs) But it made me smile, and it made me more cheerful. Uh, I've invited Casey to join us for church this morning. He said he would try and tune in, if only to verify that I'm a real person and not just a sophisticated chatbot. So, good morning, Casey. The stewardship team communicates to you how we can bring our offerings to make all this church stuff happen. This is the message our team has been delivering all year long. We have found people in the church who have a heart for stewardship and a strong story that speaks to the blessings and the discipline of giving. But we are also faced with very real numbers. We have put forth the challenge of having 200 families become consistent monthly givers by the end of the year. And we are so happy to see that God is working in this church and we are heading in the right direction. In April, we had 110 households giving and in May, it was 127. And that is the thing to celebrate. Thank you. But how are we supposed to celebrate that? We have talked this over all our meetings, and we are universally opposed to a big old thermometer on the scale. We don't want to put up graphs and charts, but we do want everybody to know that this goal is a challenge. This is hard. This takes more than just hoping it will happen. We have got to talk about how our church can become better givers, but we don't want to bug you about it over and over again. That's the tension in this message. What is the best way to convince people to give their gifts to church? What is the best message to deliver that will really land with someone? I have searched the scriptures, and I've found several different motivations that people have for giving offerings. This is a clever prank, so. I really didn't set this up. Oh, we need money to fix all this equipment. Looky here. Whoa. That might just be the media team clapping right there. <laughs> I don't know if they handed me this because this is not working or because I keep doing this. But anyway, I'll just keep going. Maybe they want me to stop waving my hands so much. It's one of those, I'm sure. Oh, what is the best way to convince people? In the Bible, there are uh, reasons that people had that were very, very practical as to why they gave. In Second Chronicles chapter 24, King Joash held a capital fundraising campaign to repair the temple. They made a big old box 
They put it in front of the temple and they sent out a tax notice. They said, we need to fix the church, time to pay up. And the people did it. Verse 10 says they were glad to do it and they cheerfully brought their money. In Leviticus chapter 10, God told the priests, when people bring their food offerings to church, the animals, the bread, the wine, set aside part of that for yourself and for your family to eat. That's how you get your meals, is people bringing their offerings to church. So those are very practical reasons to give to God. Feed the people who work at the church, fix the building. There are also moral reasons to give. Acts chapter 11 describes how the church in Antioch heard about a famine that was coming to Jerusalem, and it was coming to devastate the country. The disciples in Antioch decided that each of them would send whatever they could to help. When others are in need, we feel a moral obligation to give assistance. That's a motivator to give, to give our time, our money, and even our own food. There are traditional reasons to give. People brought their offerings to church because they're supposed to. It's just what you did. You come to church, you bring some money. In Luke chapter 2, Mary and Joseph brought baby Jesus to church, and they brought their offering, two doves. It was probably really hard to put those doves in that little offering envelope. And then you got to lick it, and you get feathers on your tongue. All of those are reasons to give. And one of the more of those reasons may speak very well to you. You may be very practically minded, and you want to keep the lights on and the AC running, especially now, because it's hot out there. You might have a caring heart and a desire to help alleviate other people's suffering. You might be bringing your gifts because that's how you were raised, and you're not going to change now. All of those are solid reasons to give, and we, the whole church, are grateful for your gifts. Thank you. Thank you for bringing and giving to this church. I want us to go deeper with our reasons for giving. Let's talk about value. What is value? Value means that something is valuable. I didn't even need a vocabulary card for that one. That was easy. If it's value, and if it's valuable, it's significant, and I should get it, and it's worth it. Last summer, my family and I went camping on the Gulf Coast, and on the way back, we masked up, and we went to Space Center Houston to see awesome space stuff and rockets. It was August in Houston, so it was hot. And after taking our tours, and walking around outside and standing next to blistering metal rockets, we were thirsty. And the people at Space Center Houston knew that we would be thirsty. So when it was time to buy one bottle of water, and it cost $4.50 for one bottle of water, we paid it. Because that water had value. It had far more value than the bills in my wallet. You know what else has value? A subscription to Disney Plus. Seriously, I got a big chunk about it. For $8 a month, you get so much Disney stuff. You have access to decades of past programs. You get to see awesome new shows. You can access the back catalog of so many Star Wars things and so many Marvel things. For $8 a month, you can watch all 703 episodes of The Simpsons. That's value. There is so much value packed into those $8 that you cannot watch everything. When Disney Plus launched in 2019, there were 763 hours worth of movies, just movies, 
That's more than 31 straight days, no sleeping, of movie watching. That is an incredible value for your $8 a month. And do you know what else has incredible value for $8 a month? If every family in this church gave $8 a month, that would fully fund our world missions budget. That's the money that our church sets aside to help pay for sending out missionaries. $8 a month to help send our brothers and sisters around the world to share a message that can completely transform someone's life now and for eternity. That $8 from everyone at church makes those things happen. That is value. Now, hear me well. I'm still getting Disney+. Plus. <laughs> it's an incredible value. I think we've established that. Our family has not finished watching the last season of the new DuckTales cartoon. It's so good. And there are brand new Chip and Dale cartoons coming out, and also Princess Bride and Oklahoma. So I will spend $8 a month to get that value. I will also spend $8 a month to help spread the message of Christ around the world. You can see how important value is in 2 Samuel chapter 24. This was a time that King David had made the foolish decision to count his own strength and take a census of the Israelites. This was a sinful act, and God punished David accordingly. When the punishment was over, David went to build an altar and give sacrifice to God. He went to the threshing floor of a man named Arauna, who was a bit curious as to why the king was coming over to his place. When Arauna learned that David was coming to build an altar, he very generously offered to give David, free of charge, the wood for the fire and even the oxen for the sacrifice. And this did not work for King David. But the king replied to Arauna, no, I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen and paid 50 shekels of silver for them. David was there to ask for forgiveness and for mercy for his people. He was doing something valuable and he wanted to give something that was of value. You can see value in Matthew chapter 2. That's where we learn about the wise men's gifts to Jesus. They brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Those are certainly very nice gifts. And I would have loved to see Mary's face when they presented these things to her tiny little child. These are not practical gifts for a little boy. These are also not gifts given out of a moral obligation. This was not a tradition that the wise men did whenever they heard about a baby being born. No, for them... This giving, this gift, this offering was worship. There was value in their items, but there was more value in giving them up. Look at this frankincense. It is valuable, but it is not more valuable than God. Look at this myrrh. It's precious, but it is not more precious than Jesus. Look at this gold. I can do so many things with this gold, but I cannot do more with it than God can do. This is an approach to giving that shows a changed mind. This approach to giving shows a changed spirit. Look at my money. Look at my things. Look at my time. They are all valuable, but Christ is more. Giving is a blessing. Do you know the pride I feel when I talk about our church? 
When I speak to people who are not believers or who have had so many negative experiences with church and church people, and I mention that I'm going to preach about giving money, they recoil. All that jumps to those, their minds are those money-grubbing preachers with their fake smiles and their hands outstretched saying, gimme, gimme, gimme. They think about the churches where the preachers fly around on private jets paid for by church members. They think of the thieves and the embezzlers and the liars and the crooks. That's the reputation that Jeremiah spoke of last week. Did you know, though, that there are preachers out there that are threatening their congregations? They say that they won't see God's blessings in their lives unless they crack open their checkbooks. That's the picture that's stuck in so many people's heads. And yet when I talk to people about our church, do you know what a relief that is? Do you know how great it is to say to them, guess what our church did? We asked for and got $90,000, and we immediately took that money and gave it away. We took our money and gave it to others. We helped Seminary Hills Park Elementary School, Traffic 911, and the Gladney Center for Adoption. We looked at what was ours, and we gave it to the church, knowing full well that our gifts would continue to be gifts and that the blessings would flow from God to us, to others. That is a relief and a joy. I want to talk about a transformational change that has happened at our church. I want to talk about the East Lawn. I first need to tell you that I have a terrible, terrible sense of direction. It's bad. GPS is my friend. The phrase, you can't miss it, is my enemy. I have been here for 30 years, and I still sometimes come down a staircase from the second floor, get to the main hall, and stop and say, now which way am I supposed to go? For years, I thought that the north door was the one that faced TCU. Why? Because it just it feels like a north door. It's bigger, it's, it's fancier, I'm not pointing to it right now. But no, the north door is the one on the other end of the building that leads to the parking lot. That's the north door, I think, right? That's the north door, probably. Let, let's just say that it is. Okay. Now, it's a little easier for me to calculate which way is north because of the east lawn, and I promise you this is true. When I try to think about directions in our church, I think east lawn. Then I imagine a big compass on top of the building, and the east arrow is pointing at the east and east is the opposite of west, and it's pointed the right way because when you look at the compass, the west and east go in that order, and it spells the word we, and from there I can calculate south. And Oh, that is the north door. Yeah, okay, I was right. All right, I got it now. I'll forget it later, but I got it now. It's so much work, but the east lawn helps me figure that out. The east lawn is now a thing. It's a pretty new thing for our church. I mean, not the grass and the trees and the compass direction. Those have been there before, but it hasn't really been called the East Lawn before. Before it was just that side of the building. It was certainly there, and it was a part of the church and the grounds, but now it has a very different role in our church. It is now a gathering place. It is a place where people stay and connect with each other. It was one of the very few places that our church could meet in the middle of this pandemic and be with each other and maintain that vital human connection. It is now a transformative place in our church and in how we connect with each other. D groups meet there. Events happen there. Celebrations happen there. Visitors can meet new people there. People can connect with people there. Why? 
because of a fence. There didn't used to be a fence there, and now there is. And that simple item has completely changed things. The first thing the fence does is so basic and so practical. It allows families to let their children play without worrying that they'll run into the street. And when that happens, they can relax and they can spend time talking with other people. And when more people see that this is a safe place to gather, they come along too. And more people arrive and more people arrive and we decide to set out snacks and to buy chairs and string up lights in the trees and we grow and we grow and we grow because of a fence. And what does this have to do with stewardship? Fence was a gift. It was a legacy gift from a church member who included UBC in their will. That person remained faithful in their giving even beyond their life. And when that person passed on and went to their manna feast in heaven, our church received an offering and we used it to change our church. It was also an anonymous offering. One that kept the spirit of Matthew 6, 2 through 4. So, when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your father who sees what's done in secret, will reward you. Verse 3 in the message reads like this. When you help someone out, don't think about how it looks. Just do it, quietly and unobtrusively. I do want you to know that members of the stewardship team do not know who is or is not giving offerings. That information is not shared with us. We get general numbers and trends and charts but they have no personally identifiable information. Your gifts to this church are held in confidence. What would compel someone to give like that? To give thousands and thousands of dollars away? What compels any of our giving? What makes us give up parts of our paychecks or take money from our pockets? What makes us volunteer our time to host a D group or to give up our Saturdays to park cars for football games? We give because we are changed. Christ has saved us from death and sin. He indwells our lives and we are new creations. All parts of us have been made new and that includes how we give. I am desperate to describe to you the incredible blessings that come from releasing your grip on your earthly things and handing them over to God. There aren't many miracles that we see with our own eyes nowadays. We just don't get to see burning bushes or parting seas. But it is incredible to watch how our gifts of time and money can miraculously expand and change people's lives. I teach preschoolers at our Sunday Connect time, and I've done so for many years. One thing I've noticed is that the Bible stories we tell children sometimes have different names. The scriptures and the story are the same, but the name of the story is different. For instance, a few weeks ago, our story was the one about the four men who brought their paralyzed friend to Jesus to be healed. They couldn't get into the house, so they climbed up on the roof, punched a hole in it, and lowered him down. It's a fun story to tell. Kids love it. 
I have to tell them, no, we're not going to punch a hole in our roof. This story is officially called Healing the Paralytic at Capernaum. But when it's listed in our curriculum, it's called Jesus Heals a Man, or Jesus Makes a Man Walk, or it's often called The Four Friends. The story name is just a quick reference for the teachers, and it changes based on what we're emphasizing when we tell it. If our unit is about Jesus' miracles, it would probably be called Jesus Heals a Man. But if we had a month of talking about how we can help others, the story might be called Four Friends Helped. In all four Gospels, you have the story of Jesus taking fish and loaves, blessing them, and feeding at least 5,000 people. This story is variously called feeding the 5,000 or feeding the multitude. I personally think the story would be fine if it was called the disciples join the food service ministry team. But, oh, there we go. Thank you for those amens. But in the children's lessons, when we are highlighting how children can be helpful to others, the story is very often called the boy who shared his lunch. This is one of Jesus' most well-known miracles, and as I looked into it, I noticed that it is different from all his other miracles. In most of Jesus' miracles, he just does something. He walks on water. He heals people. He calms a storm. He raises the dead. All of those miracles have Jesus looking at a situation and then acting on it. But this miracle is different. This is the only miracle where Jesus uses a gift that someone's given even when he turned the water into wine, Jesus was the one who told people to bring him water. After his mother told the servants, you do whatever he says. Jesus told them to bring the water, told them to take it out and taste it. But in feeding the 5,000, Jesus asks, what do you have? And in John's gospel, we learn there's a boy here with five loaves and two fishes. And after that small gift, what a miracle. It's important for us to remember that in this story, Jesus did not need that lunch to perform a miracle. He's the son of God. He can do whatever he wants. He could have just made bread. He has such power over our human bodies that he could have just said, now you're not hungry. I'm also pretty sure that wherever they were sitting outside, there were rocks. Jesus could have told everybody to pick up a rock, and now that rock's been turned into bread. Enjoy. Instead, he waited until someone had given a gift, sacrificed his own lunch, and given it away so that Jesus could do incredible things with it. The boy who shared his lunch could have said no. He could have refused to give up something that was his, and Jesus would have handled it on his own. But that boy's gift, that act of offering, brought him into something miraculous. Can you imagine what happened when he went home? And his mother said, How'd you like that lunch I packed for you? He said, actually, I gave it away. And you won't believe what happened. You don't have to bring your offerings to church. You really don't. We're not going to track you down. We're not going to call you up and say, you didn't give any money. Don't you feel bad about that? You can keep coming to church as much as you want, and it won't cost you anything. You can join every worship service in person or online. You can come to D groups, multiple D groups if you want to. You can bring your children to Sunday Connect, Lunch Bunch, Vacation Bible School. You can sing in the choir. You can join a recovery group, go on camping trips, so many things. None of that is connected to how much money you give. None at all. People from this church will come and visit you when you are sick, help you when you need food, be with you when you are sad, and celebrate with you when you are joyful. Why? Because this is who we are. 
This is what we are doing as a church. We are a church that comes together with each other. We are a church that reaches out to those outside the wall and welcomes them in. And we are a church that brings our offerings. We are a church that knows that every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights. We are a church that gives back to God what is already his. This is the work. I would be remiss if I did not mention fathers on Father's Day. And although this next part is for all families, no matter what their makeup, I want to speak to you father to father. Gentlemen, we are expected to set this tone in our families. We are expected to model this discipline, this faithfulness, and this sacrifice. I thought I was doing so well. When my son Peter was old enough to handle money, and by handling it, I mean not putting it in his mouth and trying to eat it, we got piggy banks for him. He had one for saving in the bank, one for spending, and one for his church offering. Again, I thought I was doing so well, but I was soon convicted about my failures. I'm a kindergarten Sunday Connect teacher, as well as a father, and my conviction came one day a few years ago before Peter was a kindergartner, before he was in my class here at church. We were doing the usual sorting of coins from the change jar, and we were dividing them up among his various banks. He took the coins that were destined for the church offering piggy bank, but then he said, there's no room in there, it's full. And sure enough, his piggy bank was full of coins. And then things started hitting me. I realized that although I was teaching him to set aside money for God, I was not teaching him to actually bring that money to church. Then I was a little upset with his previous Sunday Connect teachers for not asking them, to asking him to bring his offering to church. They didn't have the little envelopes and a basket in the classrooms. Then it hit me that I don't need to wait around for someone else to tell my child to bring his gifts to God. That's my job as his father. And then it hit me that I shouldn't be upset with those other Sunday Connect teachers at all because I was a Sunday Connect teacher too, and how many of my students had I invited to bring their gifts to church? It hit me hard. It hit me like a piggy bank full of coins. I was not teaching my son to give. I was teaching him to hoard. We are called to train up our children in the way that they should go so that when they are old, they do not depart from it. Fathers, notice what motivates your children. Notice the things that speak to them and make them prick up their ears. Are they interested in fixing things, repairing things, making sure that everything is working? Do they have a heart for reaching out to others and caring for their needs? Do they love hearing and sharing stories in the Bible? Are they the first ones in line to volunteer? Whatever makes their hearts sing and makes them cheerful, connect the dots for them. Help them to see that giving money to church lets us buy food for people who are hungry. Help them realize that when they deposit their first paycheck, their bank drafts or their app giving will help us fix holes in the roof. Help them see that the coins and bills from their very own piggy banks can send Bibles and missionaries to people who need to know about Jesus. Bring them with you when you come up to church to help sort food or set up tables and chairs or clean up after an event. As their skills improve, point them towards acts of service in the church. My son loves being on stage. He loves an audience. So we lean into that. Do you want a chance to have the microphone today? Yes, I do. 
That is him giving his skills to God. Do you remember when we had the sanctuary repainted? We scheduled two different work days where our church members came to move the pews out of the way so that the machines could drive in and get someone up to the ceiling to paint. If anyone came on that day, thank you, because you remember how hard that was. It was a team of people lifting a pew straight up and setting it back on support boards. It was grueling. That act of service from our church members, which cost us zero dollars, saved us thousands of dollars in the labor cost we would have had to pay somebody else. That's an act of service. That's an offering. Start today, fathers, and be very, very purposeful about this. When it is time to pay the bills next month, sit your child down next to you and explain what you're doing. Model for them how your family makes decisions about how to spend your money, which things are necessities and which things are luxuries. Thank God for the money your family has. If you are fortunate enough to get a tax refund or a work bonus or an unexpected gift, sit the family down and talk about it together and begin by setting aside the first part for God. If you are a father-to-be, start now. You are already investing in your upcoming child with new furniture, new clothes, new toys. Start now by planning for how you will teach your child to give. Buy a piggy bank now. Start adding coins to it. Put it on a high shelf where they can't reach it. Bring it down when they're old enough. Make giving a fundamental part of your child's life from day one. If you are a father who has a young child at home, give them some of your money to bring to church. Take these offering envelopes wherever they went. Find them. They're out on the, oh, they're on the table. They're in the foyers. They're in the check-in stations. Miss April has some. If you need more of them, ask. Let your young child fill out the envelope. They practice writing their name and numbers. Let them draw pictures on the back of it. Steer clear of the doves. Use this activity to instill good habits in them. If you're a father who has an older child at home, now make that transition to them giving their own money to church. Give them an allowance and guide them to bring part of that allowance to church as their very own offering. When they start earning their own money with lemonade stands or car washes or dog walking, celebrate with them. Pray with them and thank God with them that God has blessed them with an entrepreneurial spirit and that they can show that gratitude by giving away a portion of their first fruits. If you're a father who has a teenager at home, help them set up their own bank account. If they have their own phone, find financial management apps. Work with them to set more complex budgets. Teach them about the wisdom of investing and the dangers of credit card debt. Be diligent in reminding them that God loves them and has a plan for them, and that they can be wise stewards of the gifts he gives them. If you are a father whose child has grown up and gone off to college or a job, and they are trying to make it on their own, slip them some money the next time you see them. Slip them some cash and tell them to do something fun. Then slip them some more cash and tell them it is for an offering. It can be tough when they strike out on their own, and when they have to make their own budgets and pay their own bills from their own meager paychecks and the financial pressures are rising, there can be a great temptation for them to stop being consistent with their giving. Help them out and encourage them to continue to cling to God's faithful promises. And if you are no longer a basic father, 
but are a grandfather. Start over. Start over with those grandbabies and help build a new foundation of giving. Consider the legacy that you leave behind and how you can continue to bless even more generations. I want to ask you all a favor, all of you, not just the fathers. I know that the last time I asked you for a favor, you wound up spending a year filling your house with a huge paper chain. This is not that. Take some time this month to reevaluate your giving. Spend time in prayer, thanking God for his blessings and his faithfulness. And consider how you are returning that blessing to him. Bathe all of that in prayer and cheerfulness. Will you also please add two cents to your offering this month? Jesus watched a widow give two small coins when she came to church. He used that moment to point out a powerful lesson in giving that it is absolutely not how much we give, but how we give. As you review how you give, add two cents. Add it to your Giveify, log into your bank account and adjust your monthly transfer. Write on your checks that like two over 100 thing that you do when you're writing for change. Slip two pennies into your envelope. Why? Not because the church is desperate for pennies, but as a reminder to us that God has blessed us. Not because two cents is going to radically change our budget. Not for any of those reasons. It's for you. It's for you to recognize this is not mine. It is God's. Our prayer today is a simple one. It is 1 Chronicles 29, 16. Lord our God, all this abundance that we have provided for building you a temple for your holy name comes from your hand, and all of it belongs to you.